Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, one of your hosts, and with me, ready to help determine the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasions, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. It's D, all of the above, Patrick. All of the above, right. I figured that was, it never got answered, so (laughs) I was thinking it was D. (laughs) It was one of those so obvious that it hurts and you don't even have to answer it kind of things. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even need a red stripe to get that answered, so it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode kicks off a slate of films dedicated to the law, and more specifically, John Grisham. If you're curious on how we got here, uh, check out episode 332, particularly the last 10 to 15 minutes, and that will give you some context. This week, we are discussing Sidney Pollock's mystery thriller, The Firm, starring Tom Cruise and Gene Hackman. You have been warned, or you are being warned as of right now, that we are spoiling the heck out of it like we do all of our episodes, so if you get a chance, check it out, come back and join the conversation. I don't know if reading the book is going to be spoilery, I guess it would be, so you know, get the content some way, but we'll be talking about the movie, so away we go. First up, Aaron, I know that you are a fan of the Grishamverse in book form, and I really, I don't think we've talked about this. Have you read all of the books, or most of them? And what about the adaptations? What do you think about all that? Well, so I've not read all of the books. Anyone who has knowledge of John Grisham's career, he has been very prolific as an author. And so I think, I guess, most authors that write kind of this style of novels, right, that are, they're almost like, I want to say junk food, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in that there's a ton of them. It's like a lot of spy thrillers, right? Authors that they just put out one adventure after adventure after adventure. It's like serials, even if it doesn't have the same protagonist. And so he has written a ton of books, Patrick. And so there was a period where I read a bunch of them. When he popped onto the scene, the first book, if I remember right, that he published was actually A Time to Kill, which became the third adaptation movie-wise. And then he ran with The Firm, and it went from there. I can't remember if it was A Time to Kill or The Firm. I think it was The Firm that put him on the map for me. And he kind of just took the world by storm. There was this period where, I mean, if you look at it, he's got a novel almost every single year. It was A Time to Kill in 89, and then starting with The Firm, it's just like, Every single year is a new book for over a decade. And I read the first, I don't know, six, seven, eight. I don't recall when I dropped off. I think it was probably in the early 2000s that I started to slow down and not read every single one anymore when I joined the Navy. But yeah, I was, how old were we in the early 90s, Patrick? 91. We were like 16, 17. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I was an impressionable young man, and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be in life, and one of the many things I wanted to do in life was be a lawyer, and of course, these books helped to kind of push that along and and excite me and give me this grand idea of what it might be like. So John Grisham and Tom Clancy were my two fun authors. I read a lot of classic novels, but these were the two guys 
that I would just consume every book that they wrote for a decade and loved them. Um, and then as for the adaptations, I wouldn't have suggested we cover it if I didn't like most, if not all of the movies, definitely, because, you know, we don't want to just sit here and talk about something we don't enjoy. I think that there's a baseline for his storytelling method that is always going to be fascinating to me. I'm always going to learn some weird, either unknown or uniquely used rule of law that is going to come out in the way that his uh, plots get you know concluded. And then it's always going to have fun, interesting thriller elements to it in some form or fashion or be some sort of mystery. And it's just, I guess, my sort of... Or it's almost like an early version of true crime, but not actually real. Yeah, when I watch these movies, I've never read the books, so I will only have the movie adaptations as my Grisham verse reference point, and that's fine. I don't want to do comparisons and whatnot. But when I watch these movies, the ones that I remember watching, the ones that I have watched, because some of these on this list I have not seen yet, which is good because I'm always down for first time watches. I feel like you have these stories that are really interpreted in the hands of the director, which is an obvious statement to make, but they also determine runtime, they determine pacing, they determine the music. And The Firm, as I was watching it, it's his longest movie adaptation of the ones that are out there, like two and a half hours. I think the shortest one is just under two hours, but they're all pretty extensive. But what I remember about the movies that I've seen is that like you said, they use a different kind of law element. This movie did not take place in a courtroom at all. So it reminds me that being a lawyer is not about being in the courtroom specifically. It's about the law. Running. And it's about running a lot. Yeah, a lot of running, a lot of phone calls. A lot, it's about the telephone. And <laughs> uh, it just, I was like, if I played a drinking game for every time a telephone call was made, I probably would not have finished the movie. It was just so just prolific. Um, But there is a certain style that I think lives in all of these. And I'm going to initially say this now, and I may come back on it as we go through this, but I feel like there's like a quiet thriller kind of approach to this. Like there isn't a lot of heavy gunfire. The music specifically in the firm is all piano driven, which, you know, take that for what it is. And I feel like John Grisham as an author, I would think, or as a storyteller, is using the law as his, as he's using it as his focal point. He tries to wrap up that thriller around it. So it feels very green, very rookie-like, but more so just like, like a soft, it's a soft crime thriller. And I think that's what makes it kind of approachable because you may not want the extended fight sequences or chase sequences and Again, as I'm getting older, I'm finding, you know, keep it compact, (laughs) make my stories, just tell me the story, give me a couple of aha moments. And I feel like even at two and a half hours, while I would say there's stuff that may or may not be necessary, for, for the most part, it's the kind of crime thriller that I enjoy because I don't have to worry about guns blazing and and all that kind of stuff that sometimes is distracting to me. I really like the intellectual thriller of of his stories and the firm i think gets at this on on a certain level and part of that has to do with the pacing i mean it feels like this kind of 
fast tension built into a slow delivery. And I, I don't know if that really makes a lot of sense, but I feel like even from the beginning, like we're getting Mitch McDeer getting recruited and it's quick and it's boom and, and there's, there's cuts here and there. But at the same time, I don't feel like we're in like a crazy rush. I feel like we're slowly getting to it. And it kind of plays into the plot where you have New York and LA and Chicago all recruiting him. And then he settles in at a quiet law firm in Memphis or what appears to be a small, quiet law firm in Memphis. And I think that's by design. I think that's how John Grisham tells his stories where there's a lot of tension, but it's not built by a lot of fast paced stuff like Michael Bay kind of pacing. And, you know, that works for me. I feel like I could actually stay up to speed on what's going on. By the end of the firm, I got a little confused, but for the most Mm -hmm. part, it's a story that I get. And for better or for worse, everything that's in it is very much workable in terms of the overall narrative, whether or not some parts are necessary and other parts are are not. For the most part, I really enjoyed this viewing of the firm. I th- this, is, this is one I think I've seen second behind the Pelican Brief. Like I watched the Pelican mm-hmm. Brief so many yeah. times and it's, uh, you know, I'll spoil that and say it's, it's one of my favorites. So maybe there'll be another one that comes along that like <laughs> surpasses it, but uh, it's definitely up there along with the Rainmaker. So yeah, yeah it's I mean, just very slow. I mean, in that it's methodical. And, and I think what you're saying about it being an intelligent thriller, that's a really smart way to put it. And I also believe that his protagonists, there's something about them, and this is going to sound kind of weird, they're almost like an everyman. And that at first glance, you might want to be like, no, Aaron, they can't be. They're usually rich lawyers, or not rich, but very intelligent. I mean, this guy goes to Harvard, right? He's number two on his bar exam that he takes. He's incredibly, incredibly smart. So he's not just an everyman. But the situations that his protagonists tend to find themselves in, they are not ace, hot shot attorneys. They're they're down to earth, usually, in a way that is relatable. And when we watch them go through the situations that they end up going through and finding themselves in, there's usually an idealism to them. I love how that plays out in the firm specifically, especially with the initial conversation that he has, Mitch does with Avery, where they talk about like, and Avery specifically, he's like, oh, good, got that out of the way. Neither one of us are ideal- idealists. And then it's kind of bookended at the end where he is talking to Abby and he's like, I guess he was more of an idealist than he wants to admit or something, something of the sort, right? And so all of his protagonists tend to have that about them and that i it's funny because i think that that's very jack ryan-esque as well that's part of what (laughs) yes yeah i was just thinking the same thing i was like this sounds a lot like jack ryan it does it kind of like (laughs) it attracts me to those characters right i think because you want to be them or you want to believe that if you were a lawyer or if you were a cia agent this is the guy you would be you wouldn't be the corrupt one you probably wouldn't be the most buff one or whatever the case may be but like you would be able to have this commitment about you and it would be incredible to imagine yourself doing these great things yeah i mean when you watch the thing the the lawyer movie something that i love about watching movies centered around law whether it's courtroom dramas which are probably my favorites i really think that's great or things like this it really comes down to a combination of that idealism 
that sense of duty and that chess match that you play with the law itself. It's almost like the law is kind of your antagonist. It's the it's the opponent that you have to manipulate enough to find your way to getting that person off or to win the case or in Mitch McDeer's case to actually put the firm out of business but not at the expense of their clients which I thought was just I don't remember that I didn't remember that going in to this that oh gosh yeah he found a quote loophole he found a legal way to bring the firm down and as trivial as it seemed to at the FBI it was still a way to preserve the the purity of the law because ultimately that's what Mitch wanted to be he wanted to be a a lawyer he didn't want to make well he wanted to make a ton of money but he wanted to be a lawyer because he saw value in it and when that's part of the crux of this story that's what's attractive to me because you're able to manipulate that opponent that it's even said in the movie when Toller is talking to him about the uh the client in the Caymans he said you want me to break the law he says no I want you to go as far as you can and see how much you can bend it so even Toller understands that the law is made to be bent. It's not made to be broken, but it's made to find things that like, oh, yeah, the law didn't cover this. And so watching how they sort of play this chess match and in general, how the characters in these stories that I'm that I'm that I've seen in the movies that I've seen, how they do that, I think is pretty fantastic. And that's even the same way in A Few Good Men. That's why I like courtroom dramas is because the questioning is is that chess match. It's not trapping someone into saying something, but kind of giving the aha moment. Oh, you said this, but let's look at that. Ah, can you show me where that says this? Oh, it doesn't. Hmm, interesting. It's why I like shows like The Practice. Like I can I can watch those because it's a procedural drama, which I'm attracted to, but it takes place in a courtroom. And I'm like, how are they going to get this guy off? Or if they don't, what are they going to do to make that. And it's almost like you're trying to solve a mystery. You're trying to crack a cold case. And and the discovery of that and the way in which you get there, another great series that I'm a big fan of numbers is all about how they use math to solve these problems. And it's just, in general, I love the creativity of that kind of storytelling. I think in a courtroom, when you add the element of idealism, it just makes it better. Because as you said, this everyman mentality, I think comes from the fact that as human beings, we can attach ourselves to a Mitch McDeer. Mm-hmm. We can't attach ourselves to an FBI agent or a CIA person, someone who has you know, forensic knowledge, because we don't know that. I mean, I-, I can't do that. I'm not a mathematician, so I can't help the FBI using math. Yeah. But I can be the guy who says, look, I'm going to use what we've been given, and I'm going to try to find a way to make sure that this person who I believe is innocent is going to get their fair chance in court, or in the case of the firm, I'm going to find a way to take the power away from this big conglomerate, this, this the firm, <laughs> in, in a way that doesn't hijack my life. In other words, or what Mitch says, I want my life back. <laughs> and right. so I think all, all those things are very attractive. Yeah. And it does struggle with this specific plot because of the kind of law involved. And I think as much as I love this movie and I'm pretty sure it still sits at the top of my ranking. So I'll say that, you know, you mentioned what you thought, but going into 
this rewatch of like nine of them or however many we're going to go through. We'll at the end, we'll give our rankings, of course, I think, but it's my number one of his going in. And it was the first. And I don't know yet if that's just because of nostalgia or what, but there was some struggle. I was watching it with my 17 year old son and I had to kind of constantly be like, okay, so this is what he means. I think that Pollock is a very accomplished filmmaker. And on one hand, I respect trusting the audience when explaining pretty complicated tax law. You know, this is not a, you can't kill somebody. It's not double indemnity. All right. Where it's very straightforward. It's like you kill somebody and you can't be tried twice for killing the same person. Like that's pretty easy to grasp. This is offshore accounts for the mob, you know, laundering money, you know, putting it through shell companies and then trying to have entire conversations built around how you can lower someone's tax rate and then them paying you a fee, which will still have them come out overall positive and getting around governmental regulations and such. So it can be kind of complicated. And I think they do a solid job enough of trying to explain it to adults, but it moves fast. They don't ever really, that's where I'm torn because I appreciate that on one level where it just, they don't really stop to go through this big, long explanation. Like Avery is kind of that initial conversation when he meets meets Mitch, a lot of that information kind of gets dumped on you and it's just, it's walk and talk. It's Sorkin. It's just, you know, and then, then hopefully you got it because that's what the plot is. But then there's that thriller element to it that is kind of, moving along parallel of just a person being manipulated and you almost don't even have to have the deep knowledge of the tax situation to enjoy the fact that I know that they're doing something bad and they want to use Mitch to do something bad that he shouldn't do. And when people get wise of it and try to get out, they get killed and like, that's enough. So I was kind of torn watching it this time because my son did need a little bit of an extra like, let me explain tax law to you, person who's never actually had to file taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you need to know that. I mean, I, I will probably disagree and say that the flavor of of story that I got is just that we get enough information that tax law is the method, but it's not the point. The point is that this firm of 41 lawyers is the exclusive lawyer of the FBI, or excuse me, not the FBI, sorry, of the mafia. And they have been channeling funds, embezzling and making it clean again through the loophole of tax law. And there's there's a compelling side to that where, wow, that's something you can actually do legally. So I think that's what makes a movie like this so compelling is that it's not like they're embezzling money. They're literally cleaning it and whatever and just running it through like a like a shell company of some kind they are using the law using legal means by which to allow this mob of people this group to take their money and go through other other means and i think that sort of came to clarity for me when mitch is talking to the mafia at the end and he says hey i'm about to report this law firm that I work for 
that they've been overbilling you and I just need your signature of authorization. And the guy's like, you mean you don't have to? Nope. I don't need to know any. Essentially, I I don't need to know anything about where that money's going because that's not my business. So for me, I sort of, in knowing that, I sort of threw that whole concept out, but I knew that it was important enough to be sort of a plot device, So, but I didn't try to figure it out. I think it was ingrained enough that, okay, they're using tax law to do this bad thing, and Mitch's job is to try to find a way to either prove that or, as he finds out later, use a different method to make them go down. That helped me. But I recognize that when I look at these three components, the law firm, the mafia, and the FBI, I, ha- I kind of went through my head of asking, okay, could you take one of these out? And would the story be better? It would obviously be shorter. And in some ways, I would say yes. In some ways, I'd say no, because all of them have varying degrees of importance for him in terms of how he's battling. I think at the very least, the... The FBI is good because it creates great tension. You have these two dueling good guys, essentially, where the FBI has legit reasons for going after this law firm. They're the ones that give us the information about four dead lawyers in what a decade or in 12 years or something like that. And then you get the mafia to an extent. They are the ones that are sort of driving some of this and... And then finally, you get the you get the law firm. I thought, you know, if you got rid of the law firm, then you kind of lost the whole movie because <laughs> the title is is that. But the fact is, I think that you need all three, and you just have to kind of swallow the pill that is two and a half hours. I would probably, if I were to go back and have a conversation with Sydney because we talk a lot, um, I would tell him, "Listen, oh yeah, <laughs> I love the piano. Can if we're if we're going to ratchet up some of the tension, can we change that a little bit? Because he did at one point, he did change the music." For one scene, everything else is piano-driven. And sometimes, Aaron, it felt like you were trying to get one instrument to do a lot more than it should. And while I enjoy the piano, I think the piano is great in all the different scenes, with the exception of when we get the the typical Tom Cruise running, which is great. I love that. Uh, You can't have a movie without him running. The piano didn't seem to work for me. So I think if there was anything that I said, let's change that for sure, it would be that. I think you could probably tighten up each of those types of, I guess I could say, um, opponents of Mitch in a mm-hmm. way that it didn't feel so convoluted. But for the most part, it's good. And you know, Ebert said when he did his review back in 93, he said, the parts are really great. They don't quite create a great sum, but it's still worth the two and a half hours that you get to watch. And I, I agree with that. I agree with that perspective that there's just a lot here and I can appreciate what Pollock's doing with the story. And this is, you know, not out of the realm of his type of style. I mean, this is definitely not Tootsie, which I absolutely adored, (laughs) but it's one of those, those quiet thrillers that I think makes perfect sense for his directorial style. And so for my, for my money, yeah, the firm is still a solid movie. Yeah, well, with regards to the pacing, I, so or the pacing and the score both. So I've got a friend or film critic colleague here in Seattle who I was looking at his letterbox review as I was. I always like to scroll through and see what all of those folks have thought about older films. And his main word for it was he, he was not a fan, and he called it inert. And he talked about this apparent belief that Sidney Pollock and Harrison Ford used to sit around in Pollock's office and 
and get high on set all the time. And he was like, this makes perfect sense now why this film is shot the way it is and created this is the kind of thriller that it is and used the word inert. And he's got he's got a really good sense of that. And I he has a podcast that covers thrillers. So it's not surprising to me that he would think that maybe about this one. It works for me because it's different. If the majority or even a large number of quote thrillers were this way, I don't think I would like it. But because it is very unique and memorable to me as I know the this is how the firm is. Like the firm is like this. It's different. And so I find it kind of special. And I actually really love the score. And from the very jump, I mean, I think that the opening sequence of this film, all the way from introductions of Mitch and Abby through recruitment and up to the point where they walk into the house. Like it is just a phenomenal sequence. And that's where that music Agreed. is going. And I know you yeah. would love it there. But yeah, for me, it does work. I think I I like it just because of it because it's consistent, honestly. And it doesn't go back and forth between sort of this it's it's got a jazzy nature to it. I mean, there's obviously that's intentional. This is Memphis that we're in, and it's meant to kind of echo this newbie blooded kind of lawyer that that Mitch is. I, I totally understand, you know, there are moments in this where the danger is ratcheted up, where people die, where people are actually shooting guns at each other. And at times it can feel a little weird to have that piano going on in the background. So I don't fault you for that feeling at all or anyone, but I think overall I love the pacing and the slowness of it because it, just allows you to really believe that this would take time to figure out and you would, and it would be complicated and there are lots of moving pieces to it. And it's not just a magical, like fix it type of thing where, because the protagonist is special and can do some sort of superhero type thing, then all of a sudden we get to kind of fast forward our way towards the finale. Like there's a lot of, little like intricate pieces that are at play here that have to work themselves out for that surprise finale to eventually take place and be successful. Yeah. Although I still question that by the way, I have to say when I was watching the final scene and he's in that hotel room with Paul Sorvino rip, by the way, uh, just recently passed away. And I believe a Joey, uh, Vitarelli, maybe I uh, forgot his last name, but a couple of like longtime famous mobster players, just great casting in this whole film. But that was awesome for them. Blackmailing the mob to me does not necessarily seem like the best self-preservation move. I, I understand, like it's probably the best option, maybe the best option that he had, I guess. But I, I don't like I don't really necessarily see it as a win. The threat he makes, I guess that is where it starts to push the boundary for me. The only time of believability. And I'm like, you're telling me the mob wouldn't care enough that they would just track down Ray and whack him somewhere and get their files back and then kill you for being ballsy and <laughs> and, and trying to, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess he's not blackmailing him so much as he's. 
he's technically still sort of protecting them by telling them that they've been cheated. But I don't know. He's putting a lot of faith in people who kill people (laughs) just on a whim because they want to make more money. (laughs) You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. And I think that if you had to, I think going back to what I mentioned earlier, if you had to remove one of those elements, I think if you'd taken the mafia face out of the movie, if you didn't just let it be Chicago, right? Yeah. Just Chicago. Chicago mafia. If you didn't have that conversation, I think that tension would still be there and that intent would still be there, but we wouldn't see it as Mitch McDeer, this common dude who grew up poor, now has the cojones to step in front of these guys and convince them that, hey, their secret is safe with him. I kind of like this analogy. I'm like a ship on the water that that's carrying cargo that will never get to its final port. I mean, that was very romantic and and kind of cool. I kind of like that analogy a lot, but I, I agree. I think that I wouldn't say it's unbelievable, but I would say it would be more believable if you didn't have a specific face to put with it. Because now they see what his face is or what he looks like, and they're like, burned right here. We're going to take it. And you're right. I mean, he's got he's got liability. Now, he fesses up to it. He says, I'm not going to know. Well, I think he says this to, um, to, the, uh, to Wayne, to Terrence. He says, I've got to live with the fact that every time I start my car, it's not going to blow up. So he recognizes that the mob is definitely, they could change their mind at any minute. But I think that conversation, which I think is one of the stronger conversations in the, in the movie, is you really see him embrace the fact that his life is his, made by his choices, not by someone else. And up to that point, his choices were being navigated by uh, this, this law firm. And he was completely just not without, you know, he had no agent, he had agency, but he didn't have a choice to do that. And so he's willing to take that risk. And, you know, I believe that he's able to take that risk because what does he have to lose? He's done all he can for his brother, giving him that 750K. And and that was something, Aaron, I, I got to admit, the first time I watched this, I, I'm seeing David uh, uh, straight, straight Heron, straight Heron? That's, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing him in this, and I'd already seen him previously in like the Memphis Bell. He's a period piece actor. So seeing him as this brother in a 1990s movie, it was a little weird. Like I, I had a hard time believing that he could play this prisoner or whatever, because he always seemed like a clean cut kind of, you know, Memphis Bell officer. And that was the, you know, that was the what 18 year old me that was watching this or 16 year old me whenever, whenever this first came out. But his relationship and his performance really grew on me. I love watching that scene play out where <laughs> he makes the comment talking to uh, talking to Mitch. He said, how'd you ever get a job working for a law firm with a brother in the slammer? And there's that awkward silence. He goes, it's cool. I'd have done the same thing. And then as as Mitch is actually trying to apologize, he's like, I would have done the same thing. You know, he says he's basically saying, don't, don't, because I understand it's cool. The best and part is when he I, says, What you think I'd tell the guys in here that I got a kid brother who's a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> he's not wrong. I mean, yep. how would you do that? <laughs> but their relationship, I think, was really one that stood out to me this time. And I I think because there are so many pockets of relationships that exist in this movie, you have the chance on each viewing to kind of focus in on one. And and that was one that I kind of spent a little bit more time being specific with. I, I love how he worked that out where, you know, all all Ray wanted. This is what I 
in my head I was expecting is that Ray just wanted to be at a place where he could see Sky. And I don't know if that meant he was trying to get free or he was just trying to find a different place, like a different prison that actually gave him the chance to walk free for a few hours a day. But I really liked how that subplot played out. It the whole switcheroo with the plane from the Caymans, I thought was cool. And the how, um, how was it? Uh, I can't remember what, what Lomax's girlfriend who had the husband who was an Elvis impersonator. I loved how that came in. All these kind of components of a good thriller came to be. And that whole sequence where he gets off the bus and he goes into the bathroom and he changes clothes and, and he basically evades the the FBI guys and they're calling Mitch and he's like, are you following my brother? And you have this silence, like Terrence is completely owned. So those moments are such, are so fantastic and they don't have to be brought with a whole ton of energy. They're just like, this is what happens. And so, yeah, I think when you watch this movie, it makes a lot of it makes a whole lot of sense as you're going through it. And, you know, I think it's worth a second viewing just to kind of pick up on okay, what else is going on here? But um, but definitely that relationship was good. Um, I like how the yeah, movie very, opens. Go ahead. I was going to say, it's very Shawshank Redemption. You know, it's it's the similar kind of feeling of, I just want to be out of here at this point. Like, I don't really, he even, he's very specific about it when he says that line about just wanting Sky. He's like, I can deal with the food. I can deal with, forget, like the people. But he's like, I just, just want Sky, and that's very much the same kind of vibe you get from the Shawshank Redemption, and it's a similar kind of a thing. In fact, he's in there for manslaughter, and Mitch says at one point when Terrence is, he's like, "Oh, you want me to get your brother out? He's a felon," and he's like, "He's in for manslaughter." And Mitch is like, "He would never be there if he hadn't been a boxer. He was beating somebody up like to protect somebody, and he killed him." by accident because he just is a powerful boxer. And so you, you really don't feel like he, he, and he's very meek and not meek. That's probably the wrong word, but he's soft and he's tender and he's calm. Like he's clearly not someone who would be a danger out in the world. And so you really do want him to have that sort of redemption moment just like you do Andy Dufresne at the end of Shawshank Redemption that's a great comparison and his approach to life I think in being able to understand what he's got and appreciating it plays out and influences Mitch in a lot of ways because the very beginning of the movie is probably one of my favorite parts because I'm kind of living vicariously through Mitch I love how he is getting recruited by all these big law firms and well deserved top five in his class the way in which he goes about getting um, each of the uh, each of the offers, and then he finally gets to Bendini something and Locke. I'll just keep calling it the firm because I'll never be able to get the three. Lambert. The three. I'm they, surprised you yeah, got Bendini, did. but you didn't get Lambert. But hey, Lambert, <laughs> like the Highlander, right? He's part of that law firm, right? Anyway, um, yeah, Bendini, Lambert, and Locke. How they recruit him? I really kind of was envious of that because I would love to be recruited like that. I'd love to be sought after. I'd also love to have a job where I'm flying to the Caymans on a whim and getting to hang out to go scuba diving and all the, I mean, there's just something very intoxicating about that. And when I think about Mitch and the background, the where he comes from, having a mom in a trailer park, we find out that 
the way he spins his 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 family life with with the firm when he's being interviewed and we find out actually like what it is he wasn't lying besides the fact that he doesn't have a brother but when he talked about his his my dad died here and my mom remarried and she lives here i mean that's not those aren't false statements <laughs> it's just the fact that what we find out when he's talking to his brother <laughs> he asks him how's you know his mom still with so and so she goes and he goes does it really matter they're all the same you know they're all the same person and so we get this sense as we follow his story that you know he doesn't come from good money and it's sort of exacerbated by the fact that Abby does, but yet she doesn't flaunt it. This is not the world that she knows. We don't know anything about the fact that, you know, do her parents like him because he's trash or that, you know, whatever. But I think this is a significant driving force. And for me, when he has that conversation with Ray, when he's starting to find the conflict, I want to feel like he realizes, wow, my life even if it's not great, even if it's not filled with Mercedes and paid for student loans and low mortgage house payments, it's a life that I want because it's with the people that I love and I don't have to be concerned about the legality of it. And I think that's another part about this slow burn that works for me is because of the fact that we're not sort of thrown into it. We're just gradually given the the pieces and parts there's this really great scene where mitch comes home late and he does that great dialogue with abby saying i was in a car wreck there were like 11 cars also this lady was pregnant she was having a baby i delivered the baby they're gonna name it abby and you know it's it's this flirting and she tells him all i want is just flowers every once in a while i don't need all this stuff that you talk about and you think they're going to start kind of cuddling and everything's going to be okay and she says something and he says something and then the tension just ratchets up because we get the fact that he can't get over the fact that he comes from poor he comes from no money and he even tells her it's easy to talk about being not having stuff when you've had it and wow i mean that was like insult city and so I think that that motivation is challenged throughout the whole movie because I'm thinking with him, I'm like, wow, you've got 96K a year plus a 5% increase. You have your student loan paid for. You got all this stuff. And part of me for a moment, Aaron was like, does it really matter? I mean, can you, I mean, can you just kind of look the other way? Because it's, you know, sometimes it pays to be naive. And in this case, it does. And then I have to get back to reality and say, no, Mitch has a conscience and he wants a life that doesn't involve being deceitful or being controlled. And I think that having that relationship with his brother puts a better reality check there and the fact that, you know, he went to go visit him and stuff. So I like that aspect. I think that was a necessary component of the movie was his relationship with his brother. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think the riches issue with Abby is a very key component to the character. It's very important because it really sets everything up. I mean, this is why they know he's controllable. I mean, this is why he's recruited. It's not just because he's the best. It's because he's the best and psychologically profiling him, it checks out that he would be able to be fit into their mold and kind of, you know, just brought into the firm and the the way it is and where you never get to leave because he would want it so bad that he would just think it was incredible and he wouldn't think that there was anything else out there because 
this is I've I've achieved this, and so there would be a gratefulness to him for pulling him out of quote the gutter financially speaking. So that's part of why they're going after him, a big part of it. And I and I think that that scene is probably the most heartbreaking outside of the one where he's finally coming clean to her because that was pretty hard to watch too. Ooh, yeah. And I I think that is another aspect of this for me that I've gone back and forth on over the times that I've seen it on because <laughs> I think it had to be there. I, I hate it, but he can't be perfect. He can't. And whatever the thing is that gets him, the the mistake that he makes, whether it's infidelity or something else, but like he has to have a flaw to overcome. He can't just be, again, a superhero, right? He has to kind of be relatable in a way that, and what makes it really sting, Patrick, is that he turns down the first one the first woman at the bar that comes up to him and is like trying to get him to do something with her and he's like yeah he just shuts her down right and then he gets seduced and sucked into this and up until that point i think you're largely on his side and you and then it, as a viewer it makes you question things and it's like wow could this guy really just be what the firm is? Is he really, is he not as idealistic as we want to believe? Is he not as good of a person and a husband as we want to believe he is? If he can be this kind of swayed. Um, And there's a great comment that calls back to that towards the end about how, I don't remember if it's, I think it might be Abby that says it where she's, I think it's Abby, but someone is calling out the fact that he could end up just like Avery. I think it is Abby. She t- I think she's telling him and she's like, you would be like Avery if you just stuck around for another 20 years. And that is one of those, Oh, like it's kind of, it's very reflective in my opinion, because you can put yourself in a situation in any aspect of your life and think, well, what path am I headed down? And what are the decisions I'm making now that may not have the ultimate price in the moment, but absolutely could lead to that if I let them compound. And that is what the firm relies on and how they get you. And sure enough, you know, he was going to get got <laughs> if he didn't. Yeah. And, yeah. And she didn't have to forgive him. I mean, I, I think I would have been as an outside viewer of their marriage and their relationship completely understanding either way. I was never rooting for forgiveness, to be honest with you. I wasn't like that. Wasn't an aspect of my personal connection to their marriage. I was heartbroken, but I would have supported Abby in whatever decision Abby made. And I love that she sticks with him, but I would have totally respected her if she helped him and then did not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think both both conclusions make would make sense and both are satisfying if she stayed or if she didn't. I like the fact that she didn't tell him what she was going to do because she knew that he would freak out or he'd worry or just you know jack up his plans, but I think more than anything she loved him more she 
what was it? I think Toller said something really interesting. I can't remember the line, but she said, I did it to protect Mitch. And he said, that's more powerful than leaving him or hating him or something like that. The way, the way in which he describes it, you know, seeing her protect him, even though she didn't trust him, that showed a deeper love that she had for him. And it justified, I think the end of the, of the movie where they get back together. Now, I believe it's going to be a very cautious relationship from there. I mean, it's going to take a while to earn that trust back. But the fact that she was deep into that too, enough to love him and take those risks, I think it said a lot more about her. And I think that he learned more about her, that she's not just dedicated to him, but she understands the depth of what he was trying to do and wanted him to succeed. Um, specifically for his own benefit, but also for the benefit of getting his life back and whatnot. I think that the the film really plays with this idea of what I would call selective morality, this idea that you get into a situation and it's like that analogy where if you try to cook a frog by throwing him into a boiling pot of water, he's going to jump right out. But if you put him in a cold bucket of water or pot of water and then you just slowly turn the temperature up, He's not going to know the difference. And I think that's what the two-year plan was for uh, Bandini, Lambert, and Locke, the idea of just ingratiating and catering to this type of thing. There's this idea of a very masculine-driven law firm. Um, an interesting conversation. They're walking down, I think, Bill Street, or it's supposed to be Bill Street. And Abby's, uh, or Mitch is being told, they're both being told that there was only one female lawyer and she was sort of dismissed in that conversation, but that on the other end of that, you have this mother, quiet wife role that is, quote, encouraged. You know, children are encouraged and um, working is not, um, what, she, what word did she use? Working is not uh, forbidden. Those, those types of words are incredibly yeah. like those are red flags okay it's a cult i looked at tyler and i was like sounds yes. like a cult <laughs> yeah absolutely and so they create this false sense of security and they're protecting the members of the family when in actuality they're protecting certain members of the family and if you don't fall in line you're dead and that of course happens with uh, i believe it happens clarify i might be wrong but i think it happens with toller so his his arc is really interesting too where he is part of this you know, he's the mentor and he's sort of giving mitch everything that he needs and he becomes very impressed with what mitch can do in fact he's very surprised at how he talks to um to sunny caps <laughs> in the uh, cayman islands and i think it kind of starts to change him and as they're talking i see his relationship with mitch sort of becoming more influenced rather than influencer. And so by the end of the movie, when he is talking to Abby as he's waking up from this kind of stupor that he's in, even up to that point, I think he's starting to see that she still loves Mitch. She's not going to sleep with, with him. But by the end, I feel like he's got kind of a reformed character, one that I can appreciate, one that has kind of come around and said, look, I lost what the law i lost my passion for what the law is and what value in it and I, i'd like to believe aaron that he was an idealist at one point and sort of got jaded by what the firm took from him 
and that his choice to let her go to give her the information so that she could escape was his last ditch effort to sort of say, look, I want to come clean. And as a result, he's he's drowned or I think he's drowned. He's killed. And, um, you know, that's kind of the the tragic end to his character. But I think that's what makes him appealing to me. And I love that's another kind of relationship that I've I watched this time around. Like, how is his relationship with Mitch influencing him just as much as it's influencing Mitch? It's a really, really great thing. And I think there's a question I, I was asking, was Mitch an idealist and he's just faking it? Or <laughs> was he was he ultimately, uh, was he not an idealist and he became that? And I think he was always that. And it was just sort of hidden because, you know, it wasn't fitting or compatible with what the firm was trying to to get to. But I think in some ways it sort of extended to Toller. And as a result, I think, he sort of either re reignited his in, uh, his idealism, or he got some idealism before he was actually killed. Interesting to think of him that way. I don't know that I did that much. I can see it. I can see how you know he plays that way, probably intentionally, as more of a tragic figure. But it's hard for me to get there because of he's. He's rotten, man. He is such a little rotten egg all the way through this movie. I mean, performance is phenomenal. Gene Hackman is almost in a different movie than everybody else, I think, at times. He he is just not, like, better than everybody else, but, like, his persona is so big, and everybody else's movie doesn't really have those kind of outward charisma about them, that outward charisma. And so I, I think the womanizing thing is frustrating to me because I don't think you just lay there drugged and say, Oh, this is me saving you. Like, I I don't know. I don't think he gets credit for that in a lot of ways. I kind of question he's drugged and he doesn't intentionally get drugged. So he's not actively helping her. If he really was seeking some sort of redemption to me, it's more than just, I heard you on the phone and I'm going to choose not to answer this phone call and tell them you're here. I don't know. I mean, I know that that's important, but I feel like there's just so much more to it than, than that. He feels, it feels late to me, honestly, it just feels late. And I guess I'm, I'd rather him go out like this, maybe to make it ambiguous or not ambiguous, but to give us a reason to question whether or not he it's good that he does go out on a positive note i guess in a sense but to me it's not like redemptive he okay. is he is a tragic character you're 100 percent. i think that is right i think he is the example of what happens when excesses become the thing that is important to you and that overtakes and over value is overvalued over your wife and everything else your ideals and the law itself because i mean he just he is not good <laughs> at all in this movie like he's kind of rotten all the way around and so yeah it's rough for me you know he he very much i feel like was ready to sleep with her and if it hadn't been written all over her face that she wasn't really serious, like he was in. I mean, the fact, dude, I just, I guess I just can't get over it. Honestly, it's the okay. moment that he goes to the the school. The fact that he goes to the school and propositions her 
because he hears that she's going to leave Mitch is just so disgusting to me <laughs> that I just am like, dude, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Maybe maybe that's on me that I can't get over. No, no, I, no, I think you're right. I would say that, let me, let me rephrase that and say that I think his action is what would be the equivalent to a bedside salvation. When you have someone who's lived their whole life yeah. in the vice-filled world of I repent from it all! <laughs> exactly. Does that redeem him? Probably not in terms of his character, but I think it speaks to the fact that he knew that the choices he was making in that moment at the next morning were going to be the death of him. And so I think he saw, look, you, Abby, clearly love your husband. And it's, I don't think he says it's not worth it to me to break that up. But I think he recognizes that this means more to you than me ruining something does for my own selfishness. So redemption or not, I think that at the very least, the choices he made were probably motivated by the fact that he knew his life was going to be over. Because I don't know that he could live with himself personally if he had survived that. And so watching him make that choice it obviously for us gave us kind of a yay that means that she's going to live potentially <laughs> and so is you know maybe get back with Mitch which happens but i think the tragic character in him is the most compelling thing and you're right gene hackman sort of is elevated above all these other characters and in fact one of the um pieces of trivia that i read had to do with the fact that his name was negotiated that he would get top billing before tom cruise and he actually told the production company he did not want his name on any of the materials, not the sleeve, not the poster, none of that, because he wanted it to be a surprise when he came on screen. And so Tom Cruise, his name is in the credits. I need to go back and look, but I think his name is actually second or later on. And that just speaks to a whole different kind of ego in Hollywood about where your name is and whatnot. Um, I've had this conversation with other folks about how just ridiculous that is. But but at that time, you know, he, he was making a name for himself. I mean, Tom Cruise was getting up there as well, but Gene Hackman had been around for a while. So he was clearly a veteran. He and, uh, you know, Hal Holbrook had been in several things together. I, I was kind of taken aback seeing Wilford Brimley, you know, Mr. Robbie uh, just get, getting even. kicked and getting kicked can't. by Tom Cruise. I was like, come I'm on. Sorry. Don't do that. This dude, he's so, he's I don't a really security buy him as, guy. Yeah. I, just, I don't buy a, him. It's hilarious. I almost think it's a joke. Like, it's almost like an intentional <laughs> joke to take the guy from Cocoon, and I think he's in Cocoon, right? And- you know, the Quaker Oats guy and like the the most warm, comforting <laughs> grandfather figure ever and be like, he's the bad guy. Like he's the guy that's going to hunt you to have send assassins out to your door. And I just it's it cracks me up. Like it's it, it, I, it's entertaining to me, but not because it's realistic. It's sorry, that, whatever that I just said. It's not realistic. It is hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> and you know, the the scene where he uh he shoots Tobin Bell's character, the Nordic man is is his character's name. I love it. You know, the the pale white you know, face and the, albino. Uh, the white albino hair. Uh he was kind of like a Christopher Christopher Walken like B version. <laughs> I would watch him. It it's just like I, I would never picture Wilford Brimley 
brandishing a weapon and being able to shoot somebody. And as a result of that, I would never expect somebody like Tom Cruise to just be kicking him relentlessly. <laughs> like, stop doing that. He's a nice old man. Leave him alone. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to throw some love at uh, Gary Busey. He is great as Eddie Lomax. One, because he has an office in Little Rock, and I think that's fantastic. I looked around. I, I wanted to believe, I knew this was probably not true, but I wanted to believe that the city outside his office was really downtown Little Rock. I know that it was very, I think it was covered by blinds and stuff, but we did get our little Razorback on the uh, on the park yes, bench, which I did. thought was, was pretty great. And uh, I love I love his uh, his character in this. He, you made a you made a comment that um, that his character in Point Break <laughs> didn't die, and so he he relocated to Arkansas to be a part of this. Uh, to make a, a new life for himself and ends up getting killed in this as well. But he has that same eccentric character. And I never believed, I never doubted that he cared deeply about helping Mitch because of, it sounds like what his brother did for him. And um, of course, a lot of that energy was driven by his caffeine and sugar and everything that he was getting in his coffee. But I loved watching his character in defense of Mitch. In fact, when, um, when the Nordic man and his partner come in and start shooting him in the ear and in the shoulder and stuff like that, and then eventually you know kill him, not once did he back down. And so you could think of him as a throwaway character. I don't because I think that that you know spurred his secretary on to really move forward, and then she became a really great supporting character for Mitch. That's the other thing, Aaron, that I wanted to bring up is the fact that the resources that he uses. Inside the firm, outside the firm, the chess pieces, that's probably something that I see as consistent in a lot of the John Grisham movies that I've seen, is the ability to use resources, use people, use situations, use documents. That's phenomenal. And to use them not just because they're cool factors, but to really make sure like, okay, I've got an idea, but I'm going to put you in arm's way. Is that going to be okay? I hope it doesn't. And switching around plans at, you know, at the last minute. All that stuff is motivated by characters in this movie. You know, none of it feels like, oh, yeah, we just need this Eddie Lomax character to give us some information and we'll just kill him off. No, no. He actually had some relevant stuff to say. And that kind of information carried over into eventually the plan that Mitch had. So I thought so I thought that was really great. Yeah, I agree. I liked them a lot. And. All the cameos, I think. I don't. They're not cameos, but just the cast. It, it's from top to bottom. It feels like it's such an A list. I'm trying to think of the comparison, and it might be kind of like what a Marvel movie is. I mean, there was clearly a desire going into this to capitalize on John Grisham's immense fandom, and people today who are listening to this podcast and are 20 something years old probably just don't understand and never will. But like the amount of hype behind this guy as an author in the nineties, he was humongous. So everybody was reading his books. Everybody knew who he was. He was accessible to all ages, you know, and it was entertaining for all ages. It wasn't as niche as much some storytelling can be. And so 
for them to decide to adapt this and to kind of like begin to go, I mean, the Pelican Brief, as we'll talk about next week, it was the same year. Like there were two right away in the first year. And you look at all of the casts of this film line. They're all A-list stars in them. They There's like multiple like A or B level directors. I mean, Sidney Pollack starting it off was known for one of the most renowned kind of political thrillers in Three Days of the Condor, had won a Best Picture Oscar with Out of Africa. You know, like, I mean, the guy is class. And so you see that several times throughout these movies. And it felt almost like Marvel-esque when this cast came together. Because you're taking so many people who, at the time, you knew who they were and you recognized their names and you were like, oh my gosh, this person is in that movie and this person is in this movie and Ed Harris is in this movie, but he's nothing but like, he's just an FBI agent that shows up a handful of times. Like they've got like small parts, right? They're not all the stars when typically these people would lead or co-lead their own movies. And so I just think that it was uh, phenomenally put together and I, and I love all of their individual pieces. Well, and Holly Hunter, who plays Tammy, Holly Hunter, yeah, I kept forgetting. Yeah, five minutes of total screen time. Five minutes. Seriously? Like, wow. Like she I is. Guess... She is in and. I mean, that's she's in that's a bunch of thing. quick edits. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, pivotal role, and I mean that you know, her name is now synonymous with with a list or very popular. So that's something I'm looking forward to about going through a lot of these. It's just like, well, who's coming up and who's showing up in this one? Who's going to be here? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was looking back at the ones that we're covering. Uh, seen the Pelican Brief. I have not seen the next three following that, The Client, The Kind to Kill, and The Chamber. I've seen The Rainmaker, and then nothing after that. So, Did you say you haven't seen A Time to Kill? I have not seen A Time to Kill. Well, so that's surprising. That would... I, I actually had another of my close friends tell me that just this past week, too, and he was saying... <laughs> you should, he's like, you he's like I read the book, the but I haven't seen it. I don't know. I mean, I, just, I guess I've, I remember A Time to Kill as most people's... In fact, it may... Yeah, most people's belief that it's the best, right, of all of them. Okay. Do you know who's in it? I know Matthew McConaughey is, just because I've seen screenshots. Oh, man, I'm excited to get to that. You're going to, boy, oh, boy, that's going to be a pod. It's heavy. (laughs) You you haven't read it? I've not read it either. Oh, yeah, that's right. You just see it, right? Okay. Oh. Yeah, and based on our our rotation, you're covering that, so I I hope for really good notes, copious notes from you. (laughs) Am I? Are you sure? Yeah, it's the fourth, it's the fourth one. Is the fourth? Yeah, I'm surprised. I thought it was the third. Okay, well, good. No, the client's the third one. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, with that, we will say court is adjourned for this episode of Feel and Film. Oh my gosh! I'm sorry. (laughs) I won't do that every week. I promise. Or maybe I will, depending. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, (laughs) as you mentioned, Aaron, we got the the uh, the Pelican Brief coming up next week. Uh, We got Julia Roberts headlining that along with our man Denzel Washington. So I'm excited to revisit that one. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we hope that you are going to enjoy it as a listener, this journey that we're on into the Christianverse. Until then, we will say talk to you soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.